I'll be reading from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. This morning as we uh, begin, I want to ask you to do something with me. It is, um, some of you know this, um, it is incredibly nerve-wracking to stand up in front of a group of people and, uh, and talk and uh, I just I say that because these young men this morning have been leading us as a church family in worship. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld tells a joke. He says that uh, according to statistics, uh, the number one fear that Americans have is public speaking, and number two is death. So what that means is that if you're at a funeral, you would rather be the one in the casket rather than the one doing the eulogy, all right? So uh, I just want to ask you to thank these young men for leading us in worship this morning. Can we do that? Can we thank them for that? Thank you, guys. Yeah. <laughs> and, and as you know, these are just a few of our, uh, of our seniors that we honor today. Some of our graduates, they'll be, be walking across the stage here in a few, uh, in a few days, a few, a few weeks. And so we honor them. We honor their families in this special place um, where they are right now in, in their lives. It's been noted that, um, that in the digital world, the, the culture that we find ourselves in, that we are more connected than ever before. Many of us right now on our persons, we, we have a phone, perhaps you have some sort of tablet device, uh, maybe you have a beeper or a pager if they still make those, I don't know, but you know, you probably have some sort of device where you are, are connected with other people. Someone could reach you right now if they wanted to, if they tried to. So we, we are greatly connected. So it's been said we've never been more connected than, than we are now. But there's also this kind of paradoxical thing where we're more connected than ever before, but we feel further apart than ever before. Can you relate to that? Does, that? does that have any resonance with you? Uh, maybe this, this picture might, uh, might hit home, you know? You go to a restaurant now and you kind of look around and there, there, a lot of us are sort of lost in, in these little devices. And so we're, we're sharing table, you know, we're even in the same room, we're breathing the same air, but we're not, we're not really connecting. Social media is one of those things that was originally created to, to connect people. It was a networking tool. And it delivers on that promise of keeping us connected, at least to a certain degree. I mean, that's what fuels its popularity uh, these days. But 
But I think we also understand there's a flip side, and this little cartoon sort of illustrates it. There's a, a flip side to this sense of being connected that it really and truly, even though we, we might be connected in a digital sort of sense, when we substitute that for real connection, we walk away feeling a little bit hollow, don't we? You know, so as, as great as it might be to be able to connect with your friends and keep up with what's going on in their lives through, you know, social media, you follow their Instagram story, or, you know, you, you connect with them and you feel like you're sort of keeping up with, with someone that you love, that's really no substitute, right, for for having them around your dinner table, for sharing a, a, a half hour with them at a, your favorite coffee shop. And so this kind of thing, it, it seems to be more and more pervasive in our culture. We're more connected than ever before, and yet we feel further apart. An author by the name of Sherry Turkle wrote a book uh, not too long ago called Reclaiming Conversation. And I think the cover of the book has two rocking chairs kind of pointed toward each other and maybe a telephone in between, you know, a, a cell phone there. She's done all this research, and she talks about sort of the climate of where we, we find ourselves living these days. And there's one of the interviews that she does that really stands out to me. She talks to a 20-year-old young lady who says she happened to be with a friend of hers. This friend of hers, they were out shopping, you know, one day. And so the friend's boyfriend broke up with her via text message, right? Which, if you don't know, that's like the worst, you know? I mean, that was just, it was an awful sort of thing. And so this guy broke up with this, this, this friend. And so the, the, the person who was being interviewed later, she, she said, that, you know, I was present. I was trying to console my friend. I said, you know, hey, let's, you want to do some more shopping? Do you want to go get some ice cream? Do you want to go home? Like, she was trying whatever to just console her, put an arm around her, and be there for her. But she said later in the interview that she was virtually useless to her friend because her friend was so consumed in the text messages that she was getting and, and the communication that was going on in the digital realm, this friend actually said to Sherry Turkle, the interviewer, she said, I realized then I would have been more used to my friend if I had not been present with her. But instead, if I had been somewhere else where she could text me and we could have gone back and forth, but being present with her in that pain, I felt virtually useless. So again, we understand we may be more connected than ever before, but all of that connection, all that digital connection may be sort of hollow. It may leave us wanting a little something more. And it's that little something more that I would want to point us to today as we reflect on, on where we are in this series now and talking about our journey together and our walk with Jesus today. We spend some time talking about this, this commitment that our elders are asking us to make commitment to connecting together in deep and meaningful relationships that are grounded in Jesus Christ. I think what you'll find as, as you, you spend some time working through God's word, you find this just almost from cover to cover. From the very beginning, it says that we're made in the image of a God who expresses himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. And because of that, I think that, that's why deep down we all crave relationship. That's why we're looking for uh, an opportunity to connect with others in really meaningful ways. And so now, as we, as we reach this point in this journey series, I'd like to ask you to think about that, and especially what this looks like in the context of a local church. If you have your Bible today, we'll begin in Acts chapter 2. I know Peyton read for us from 1 John. We'll get to that in just a moment as well. But Acts chapter 2 is where we will begin as we, as we start this, this dialogue, this conversation about what it means for us to be a a church where people can connect together in relationship. 
Uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. This is one of the summary statements that Luke provides throughout the book of Acts. As he walks through and gives us the, the birth and then the history of the church, we get a few of these summary statements, and this is where Luke kind of backs up and he says, okay, here's, here's kind of what was going on. He says here in this, in this text, this is God's word, they were continually, they of course being the believers, they were continually devoting themselves to these things, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And he says everyone was filled with awe because of the wonders and signs that were being done by God through these apostles. And he says all the believers had uh, everything together, they had all this in, in common, and then at the very end of that you'll see there in, in that text, the last line, and the Lord added to their number daily the number of those who were being saved. And that's God's word. Luke says that there are these four things that the believers were devoted to. Uh, literally, it says that they were persevering in these four areas. Uh, the first is the apostles' teaching, kind of the bedrock of, of the church. Uh, Jesus, in uh, the Gospel of John, he tells those apostles that the Holy Spirit will come, will guide them into all truth, and therefore the truth that those apostles proclaim, the truthfulness of the Gospel, we can take that to the bank because the Holy Spirit confirmed it then and now we have it recorded for us in God's Word. So these believers devoted themselves to that. It says that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, which scholars believe may have included communion, the time around the table, but, but also just just kind of that fellowship time around the table that we all enjoy. Not in a, in a ceremonial kind of way, but just, just the enjoying of breaking the bread together as brothers and sisters in Christ. That they devoted themselves also to prayer. So those are three of those things. And then the second one is the one I'd really like to focus on. They, they devoted themselves, it says, to, to fellowship. They persevered in fellowship. Now, in a church context, when you hear that word fellowship, if you've spent time in, in, in a church over the years, you probably, if I ask you, okay, what comes to mind when you hear the word fellowship, for many of us at least, I think we think of another word that immediately follows that, and if you grew up in a church that had one of these, you think of a fellowship hall, right? Isn't it kind of a fun, like, have you ever thought about that, that word, that title? You know, this is a fellowship hall. Like, we're going to restrict all the fellowship that happens in the church here, and it happens in this space, because it's the fellowship hall. How could anything other than that happen here? It's aptly named the fellowship hall, right? So, you know, we have the, a fellowship hall, and if you, again, in most churches, what happens in a fellowship hall has something to do with food. That's a big one, right? In my church growing up, our fellowship hall, all, it just, if I had to describe the smell of our fellowship hall, I would say it smelled like poppy seed chicken. That's what our fellowship hall smelled like. We had Wednesday night meals before class on Wednesday nights, and so you'd come at you know, 5.30 or 6 o'clock, and you would go through the line, and you, nobody came for the food. You did not come for the gourmet cuisine. I mean, there was like the industrial-grade standard-issue meatloaf that was like every month. We'd get one of those. I remember chicken patties was a big favorite of ours, you know, but you'd go through, and you'd get your food, and you'd sit, and you would fellowship and talk with people. So, it, you know, we, we think of food, but even deeper than that, it's more about a connection, right? And that's what this word really, really means. It, I don't think Luke is saying that, that the apostles, you know, persevered in, in some nasty meatloaf. I think what he's getting at is he's saying they devoted themselves to those opportunities to connect in deep and meaningful ways through the person of Jesus Christ. The word for this fellowship is a Greek word. It's a Greek word, koinonia. 
And that is, uh, is translated oftentimes as fellowship, as it is here. But, but it means so much more than that. And I, I want to drive that point home because fellowship, again, in our minds, it often has something to do with just, you know, casseroles. But this word has so much deeper meaning in the pages of the New Testament. It's translated fellowship, but it's also translated as sharing in together. So there's a mutuality that is involved here that that we share in some things together. It, it's sometimes translated as communion together. Uh, as we'll talk about here in a minute, Paul will use this word to describe the collection that he's taking up in the Gentile churches. You read through Paul, you see that's one of his, one of his, his, his primary uh, motivations throughout part of his ministry. He's taking up a collection in the Gentile churches, so then he can take it and support the poor brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. So it has that kind of meaning as well. It's a word that points toward a kinship that we share together in Jesus. I think you find that moving through the narrative that Luke records in Acts. And I think you also find that in the passage that Peyton read for us a moment ago from 1 John chapter 1. And I just want to return to one of those verses that he read for us there, verse 3, where John says, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us. We're back to that horizontal component we spoke of a few weeks ago in this series. So there's this koinonia, there's this sharing in, there's this communion, there's, uh, th there's this horizontal element that, that, that the scriptures point to with this term koinonia. But then John also, John also expands our understanding. He says, and our fellowship, our koinonia, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This koinonia relationship encapsulates not only our relationship with one another, but also our relationship with God. And you put all that together and you look at it and, and we see it is, it is a description of the communion that we enjoy together as family. We've talked about this a little bit over the, the last few months, but loneliness and social isolation continue to be uh, factors that, that are recognized as public health problems. Some public health officials look at, at the epidemic of loneliness in our culture today. And although I, it's kind of difficult for me to wrap my mind around this, they say that right now loneliness is deadlier to your health. It is a greater risk to your health and to mine than obesity. Can you, can you get your mind around that? That, that more people are, are losing life according to some of the studies, because of, of things like loneliness and social isolation, then even obesity. It, it tells me that deep down we, we understand what that cartoon was pointing at, that, that we're longing for something maybe a little, a little deeper than what our digital culture can provide us. Earlier this year, it was January of this year, the British Prime Minister appointed a new governmental post, a new office, to attack some of this, and the, the post, the, the position is called the Minister for Loneliness in the UK. <laughs> they estimate that somewhere around 9 million people in the United Kingdom are dealing with this social isolation and loneliness, so much so that the government responds by saying, we're doing what government often does, right? Let's create a post to try and treat this and deal with it. Do we need a, a minister for loneliness in this country? <laughs> Don't worry, this is not a big government talk, okay? 
But do, do we deal with loneliness and social isolation just like our friends across the pond? Well, of course we do. And we understand that you know, the public health officials may be onto something, but this is not just something that impacts physical health. I believe this is a spiritual issue. Because the scriptures testify that we were created in community and we were created for community. And these relationships that we're talking about here today, they point us to God's desire for us. So the answer isn't a government agency to treat this. We find in the pages of God's word the identity of the church and the church as God's response to this deep yearning for connection place where we can be known and loved in the name of Jesus Christ. It's a place where we are truly family. I understand that when we talk about family, that can be dangerous today. You start talking about, about family in a, in a gathering this size especially, there's, there's often pushback when you, when you talk about family. And the reason for that is because not everyone has a positive family experience. That might seem strange to, to some of you, but if you have family pain in your life, I think you understand uh, what I'm talking about here. To mention family, I've found, is to, to simultaneously hit on most people's greatest sense of joy, their greatest pride, the things that mean the most to them. When you start talking about family, you, you're getting in the kitchen there on the things that matter most to almost everyone that I know, all right? So tremendous joy comes from those conversations when you talk about family. But on the flip side, when you talk about family, you know, we're also entering into, oftentimes, the areas of greatest pain and hurt and heartache for people today. When you begin to talk about family, all that comes to bear. When, when, you, when you do baby day at the church like we did last week, or when we honor graduates like we are today, which is a good and right thing to do. Or when we get to Mother's Day next week, or Father's Day a month from now. You know, anytime you get into that area, you're, you're bringing up people's greatest joys. Because they love those babies. Because <laughs> they love honoring mom, they love honoring dad. But if that's not been your experience, you also get into this place where you're talking about the people's greatest pain. Because not everybody has great parents. Maybe your parents were great and godly and they led you to Jesus. Maybe your parents weren't all that great. When you talk about children, you know, maybe your children are like your pride and joy, but maybe you're estranged from them. Maybe your children have abandoned you. Maybe they won't even talk to you right now. And when you talk about family, that's like pressing on a bruise for some. Maybe for some, you know, if you've been abused by a family member, and all you ever hear in church is family, family, family. Boy, that, that has to be incredibly difficult. Or maybe it's just the run-of-the-mill tension between family members that comes to the surface anytime someone in church begins talking about family. So all of that is in play here, and we acknowledge that. We put that on the table, all right? But I want to say this next part as gently as I, as I possibly can, with great appreciation for the fact that we come from different perspectives on all this, all right? what I want to say to you is this, though, that family pain is not a recent phenomenon. There was family pain in the first century, too. There were lousy parents in the first century. There were ungrateful kids and grandkids in the first century. 
Abuse happened in the first century. Bitterness and estrangement and jealousy and anger, the things that rip our families apart, that was going on in the first century too. But through these New Testament writers, God continues to come back to this word, family. He continues to, to push this word forward for us and say, you know what? I've gone through the Rolodex, I've gone through the thesaurus, I've looked for every word possible, and this is the best word I have to put out there for you to understand what I am trying to do for you through Jesus Christ. And that is to knit you together as a family. Whether your family, you know, won the spiritual Bible Bowl Olympics or if they were lousy people. You can be knit together as the family of God because of the koinonia fellowship that comes when we become brothers and sisters in Christ to the glory of God. Family. That's God's word for what's going on here. And it all comes back to this idea, this, this, this concept we touched on a couple of weeks ago when we talked about our unity and we said no matter the things that we might not share in common, no matter what those things might be, the differences that we have, we could list those all day long. But if we have Jesus Christ in common, if we share the gospel, the blood of Jesus covers us, and that is enough to make us family, and that is enough to trump any and all differences we might have. It's a true sense of communion and kinship. That's what we're driving at. And that's God's heart and God's vision for the church. And more locally, that is God's vision and God's heart for this church as well. It's the kind of thing that when we share in each other's joys and we share in each other's burdens. That's what you do in family. And that's, that gets at the heart of, of, of another way that koinonia is used. I want us to see this quickly and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Two passages that I want to point out that Paul, where Paul uses this term to describe this collection that he's taking up for the brothers and sisters. The first is in Romans 15. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. That word contribution, that's our word koinonia. It's fellowship, it's community. Literally, it reads this, this way. It delights for Macedonia and Achaia to make some communion into the poor ones of the holy ones in Jerusalem. This financial offering is a representation of the communion that these brothers and sisters share. I think for us, 2,000 years apart, and we read things, you know, Macedonia and Achaia, where's that? What's going on? I don't know. What's for lunch? You know, we kind of move on, right? But in, in, this, in this world, the, the differences between uh, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and Gentile Christians in Macedonia were tremendous. And Paul, through his preaching and through his encouragement, He's talking to these Gentile believers, and he's telling them, look, the believers in Jerusalem are suffering, and they're hurting, they're hungry. What can we do? What are we going to do about that? And so he takes up this collection, and he sees it as a function of their common koinonia. Because we're family, when they hurt, we hurt. And that's much the tenor that he, he adopts in 2 Corinthians 8. Same idea. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. He says to the Corinthians, look, if you think these people are loaded, you're wrong. They're flat broke, but they gave till it hurt. What about you? 
That's kind of where he's going with this, okay? And then he says, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us, and this is the part I want you to, to hear, for the privilege of sharing in, the privilege of koinonia, the privilege of fellowship, the privilege of communion, the privilege of sharing in this service for the Lord's people. These believers who probably never met this side of eternity were so deeply connected with their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem that they sacrificed greatly to meet their needs. And their mindset, again, seems to be, if our family members are hurting, then we're hurting. If they're suffering, then we're suffering. And they dig deeply. And as a, as a koinonia family, they say, all right, what do we need to do? What do we need to do to help? Sounds an awful lot like rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Because we experience this, this deep sense of connectivity in our churches today. What about just within the context of, of this church? That's how deeply I think God wants us to be connected. Let me close by asking you this. What, what is the key to a thriving church? If you had to answer that question, I don't know what you would say. There are probably a lot of things that would come to mind. What, you know, what, is the, what were the keys to a thriving church? Uh, some of the things that maybe bubble up to the surface, though, I don't think they, they oftentimes have anything to do with whether or not a church is thriving. Uh, I don't think it has anything to do with the, the worship styles where we tend to sort of default into conversations about, you know, what, what it means to be conservative or liberal. Or if you want to, you know, kind of the PG-13 version of that is traditional and progressive. You know, it's maybe a little less offensive to call someone one of those terms. But they're both equally legalistic. They're both equally unhelpful. Because what happens over here, you know, oftentimes with, with those who are labeled as traditionalists, they, they make a law out of the tradition. We can't do anything other than this because this is what we've always done. And so it becomes kind of legalistically locked in place, you know. So don't even try changing a light bulb without, you know, permission because we don't like change at all, boom, because that's the way it's always been. And so then the reaction comes, well, we're going to define ourselves and we're not going to be that. So let's be, let's be the, you know, the liberal camp or the progressive camp. And let's, we won't do that. So instead, we'll kind of come over here and do our own thing. But what happens inevitably is that becomes equally legalistic. Because anytime you think you found the new right way to do it and anyone who doesn't do it your way is wrong, you've just traded one set of problems for another. It's, it's the same legalistic cul-de-sac. It doesn't lead to any kind of thriving life in a church. So that has nothing to do with it. It has nothing to do with how dressy or how casual the people are. It has nothing to do with whether or not you use PowerPoint or songbooks or any of the other superficial things that we tend to lock in on when we think about, man, church, and that's what it's about, and that does it for me, and if you would just do it like I want it to be done, then everybody would be happy. That's not it. A church thrives when two things happen. The first is that when people are deeply committed to the mission of the church, to make and nurture disciples in the name of Jesus Christ, when we are committed, when we persevere in the apostles' teaching and that gospel truth that transforms lives, that's what brought us into the fold, that's what brought us into the kingdom, right? And so when we're committed to that, 
that's when a church begins to really take off and a church begins to thrive. And I tell you what, people will put up with an awful lot of bad preaching if they believe that the mission and the vision of the church is in line with the word of Jesus Christ. So a church thrives when that happens. And a church also thrives when people feel a spirit of koinonia, fellowship, and family moving among them. When they are so drawn to one another that they become family. And that's a desire that our digital world, our digital culture truly cannot satisfy. We are created with this desire to connect deeply with others. That's why church is not a downloadable experience. Because you miss something. You miss koinonia. And you're not present. Fully and actively present. Because koinonia is the sound of laughter in this room before church starts. Koinonia is talking about the ball game. Even if it is that, you know, Alabama-Auburn thing, right? Koinonia is, is someone asking, how's your mother doing? I heard she was sick. That's koinonia. Koinonia is all of our voices coming together as one when we sing. Koinonia is, is the sound of God's people gathering together for worship. But koinonia is also the sound of silence in this very same space. When we come along somebody in a time of grief, and we've, we've been standing in a visitation line for 20 minutes, and we got all the way up here, and we don't know what to say, and instead we just stand. That's koinonia, and that's what it sounds like. It is the wisdom of our oldest members, and it is the amen of our youngest members. And yes, it is even the smell of poppy seed chicken in the fellowship hall. It is all of these and so much more. It is the body and blood of Jesus Christ that we share in around the table. It's what we do in remembrance of him. And it is what the Spirit weaves together into this beautiful tapestry that the Word of God calls family, koinonia family. That church is who we are, and that's what it means to be devoted fellowship we're going to close this time as we always do by extending the invitation of jesus christ this is a time of response and you can respond in a variety of ways maybe today you just need to respond where you are and take some things to the lord maybe these next two or three minutes will be quiet enough for you to be able to reflect and do that maybe today you especially in light of what we've said you have a burden that you want to share with the family i want you to know this is safe space you can share things with family that you can't share elsewhere. We've had people who've responded over the years to sharing one burden or another, and we stand as family to stand with each other, to pray with each other. And so perhaps there are some things on your heart that you want to share with your church family. You can do that in this time as well. And maybe today the response that needs to happen in your heart is you need to, you need to become part of the family. Maybe all of this connecting relationship and koinonia stuff is secondary to what God is trying to do in your heart right now. And that is the prompt response to Jesus Christ, to confess him as Lord and Savior and to put Jesus on in baptism and begin this life of following after him. If that needs to happen, boy, we would love to just bear witness to that, to share in your joy as you, as you make that good confession before the great cloud of witnesses beyond. If you need to respond to the grace the hope, the mercy, and the love of Jesus Christ today. I hope you will do that. Let's stand together and let's sing our song.